Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Gospel lesson begins with the third of three instances in which our Lord foretells his impending death at Jerusalem. And for the third time, the disciples do not understand what he is talking about. One of the prominent themes in St. Luke's Gospel is the relationship between what is hidden and what is revealed. In our lesson from last week, for example, when Jesus concluded the parable of the sower and the seed, he told the disciples, quote, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Yet in our lesson this morning, those same disciples have the understanding of Jesus' words withheld from them. Quote, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things that were spoken. The disciples do not know the things concerning the suffering of the Son of Man. They cannot perceive the unity among centuries of prophetic writings. And they are not able to perceive the meaning of the words spoken to them in that moment, even when Jesus directly calls on them to behold. Their attentiveness to draw near and listen, and their privileged position in Jesus' ministry, do not yet yield the significance of what he is saying and what he is about to do. And this is no mere struggle to just connect the dots they do not yet have the key to the interpretation. We get a clue as to what that key might be in the miracle that follows. The blind man of Jericho hears the commotion of a crowd passing by, and then, in contrast to the disciples, asks what it means. When he discovers that Jesus is the reason for the passing noise, he responds by crying out for help. Jesus hears this cry amid all the noise and despite the interference of his own people. He stops the whole journey to Jerusalem to curiously ask a blind man what it is he wants him to do for him. And while it is obvious to Jesus what the man needs, he still awaits his request. After Jesus restores his sight, he says, your faith has made you well. In other words, the beggar could hear, but he could not see, and so asked an honest question in the general direction of the sound. He then sought the one he knew was there, even though he could not see him, and even while being discouraged by Christ's own followers. And when at last he found the Lord, the Lord gave him that vision to see what he had been seeking all that time in his blindness, the vision of his face as the one who had healed him. St. Luke makes frequent use of narrative pairings to express his marriage. And these are stories that are put near each other to contrast with one another and so express a truth together. The twelve heard the words of Jesus, but they did not perceive the meaning. And unlike the poor beggar, 
they did not ask. The beggar heard Jesus passing by and asked and had his blindness healed. Faith here means the humility to know one cannot see and to humbly rely on others for help even when they sometimes prove to be discouraging and then to be led to Christ. The twelve had sight, but they could not see. The beggar knew he lacked sight, but followed in the way that he could and acted on what he had heard with hope. Our gospel lesson, though, anticipates another pairing found later in St. Luke's gospel, involving the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. In that account, the Lord drew near to two men who had seen and known him before his passion, but who still did not recognize him, even though he was walking right next to them. They saw, but like the disciples, they did not perceive. As they journeyed together, they informed Christ of how they had thought that this Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, but that he had been killed, and implying that his death had defeated their hope and leaving them dejected. Jesus responded to them by saying, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later that day, the disciples would connect all of these things, saying, quote, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us. And it is here that we see more deeply into the struggle to perceive. At Emmaus, our Lord enabled the disciples to see beyond the shadow of the cross that was obscuring their vision. All that came before, and the awful sight of how it all had seemed to end, is now met with something that is now possible, all that is now possible. A new horizon of meaning opens after the resurrection, with, and with it the purposes of God that had been there all along, but were now connected and given meaning by the one who was sent to reveal them. By receiving that new gift of a quickened heart, they can perceive now that there is still a Jesus to know a Jesus who died, and yet a Jesus who lives. They are then dispatched to go and tell the twelve at Jerusalem and to answer that unasked question of Jesus' perplexing words from when they first began to go up to Jerusalem in our gospel lesson this morning. The necessity of Lent, which we are about to enter, unfolds the full meaning of the revelations of Epiphany. Jesus has been revealed in the visitation of the Magi, the Theophany at the Jordan, in, his, in the temple and his youth, in the feast of the wedding of Cana, and in the healing of the sick. Though the signs are all there to reveal who it is who has come among us, they have also revealed how slow of heart we are to believe, to trust, and to follow Jesus. Epiphany reveals the goodwill of God to come and save, and yet also 
how reluctant we are to receive that salvation. But why are we so hesitant when God is so manifestly good? We get the beginnings of an answer in our epistle. Like the Corinthians, who had received in their church a great outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we often want to pause the story right here to enjoy a Christian life as we would have it, with a Jesus who is near at hand to comfort us and to solve all of our problems. There is something in us that would still very much like to enjoy the illumination and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to help us live our best life now in a comfortable and cosmopolitan culture. Why can't God just be with us as we are? Why is he now moving us onward and in a way we do not really want to go? Like the Twelve, we avoid the cross because we can only see it as the end to the only life that we think we want to live. Like the Corinthians, we rush to receive the thing we want from God and not the deeper things that we know we don't know that we really need from God. Yet we forget that the anointing of Christ in his baptism signaled his immediate campaign against the world, the flesh, the devil, and death. We forget that when we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism and in confirmation, we vow to follow Christ and to bear witness to his kingdom to a world that will reject it, to our own flesh that will resist it, to a devil who will do all to subvert it, and to death who will always try to swallow it up. We forget that when St. Paul says that love suffers long and is kind, and love endures all things, it is no romantic sentiment, but a reminder of the fierce opposition to God's love that we can expect in this world, and that the Spirit is given to us precisely to lead us into our experience of Christ's cross. Yet we must begin again as we enter Lent with the Spirit taking us now to the very place where the costly redemption that required the life of Jesus still persists in those inward wounds and places of hardness in our hearts that make us slow to perceive and believe and trust and follow him. The Spirit of Christ now means to reveal the place in each of us and among all of us where we still need to be perfected in the love with which our Lord first loved us. Lent now awaits as the schoolhouse and a trial of love to bestow again a gift of love and to perfect us in that love, which alone will lead us into the Christian life as it is given by God and not as we would settle for. Only there will we find the real Lord Jesus, because only there is the place where he comes to save us. Only there we will see him as he is, and know him as he is knowing us. Until the resurrection, though, there will be a part of our hearts that, like the disciples, remains avoidant to that journey toward the cross, which is why we all resist in some way the gift of Lent. For how can it really be 
that the cross is the way to resurrection? How can it be that the costly martyrdom of love among very imperfect brethren is the way of our perfection in the Christian life? We do just about anything to avoid the cross because it reveals the precise way we have all been complicit in the world that makes the cross necessary. Yet we will also do anything to avoid the cross because even though we are laid bare by it in our most unlovable form, we will also find the Son of God there, still our Emmanuel, still God with us. And there we will find him loving the unlovely to the end. We need Lent because none of us have yet come to terms with that kind of all-transforming love. We can hear of it. We can read about it. But we have not yet known it so perfectly as to receive it fully and so become that love completely 